Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information. 60 people lined up to give testimony at the mic about how they've been healed. One woman who was bent over, just like the Bible character, and he prayed for her, and she stood upright. Another guy who leapt high like a basketball player, and he couldn't move before, and he's jumping high. I've got it on video, leaping up. Another woman who was holding the crutches up over her head that she'd come to the meeting with. The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Esther Hyam. The Profile is the show where we sit down with a well-known Christian to hear more about their life, their faith and their ministry. It's brought to you in association with the UK's leading Christian magazine, Premier Christianity. The monthly title features more interviews just like this one, along with the latest news, reviews, columnists and more. So to request a free sample of the latest issue, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Today on the show, I'm speaking with the veteran church leader and pioneer Terry Virgo, the founder of the New Frontiers International Network of Churches. Terry began his ministry with a small house church in Seaford on the south coast in 1968, with no sense at all, he says, that it would one day become a worldwide movement with nearly 2,000 churches globally. In those early days, New Frontiers was part of the growing charismatic movement in the UK, refocusing on the work of the Holy Spirit in people's lives and breaking out of some of the dry traditions of church at the time. Terry stepped back from day-to-day leadership in 2011, handing on the baton to 15 apostolic leaders within the network. However, he's far from retired. Aged 83, he continues to travel around the world speaking and ministering. Our conversation covers a lot of ground, from his conversion as a teenager to his longing to see revival and some of the controversies in the church, both then and now. I began by asking him if he had any idea in those early days of the movement that God was birthing. No, none at all, really. Uh, We were just in a local church in quite a small town. I think what we were doing was quite radical at the time, uh, transforming a fairly normal evangelical church, which was quite a new church, uh, into something more uh, charismatic and uh, flexible. Uh, Everything was very formal. It's a different day uh, we live in now. I'm going back to the 1960s, uh, where church life was so much more formal. You wore a suit to go to church. The hymns were listed on the wall before you started. And uh, so that's how we we started. And we, we gradually transformed that into a much more flexible family church, yeah. So you knew you were doing something radical, and what was the most difficult bit of that? I think that when I was invited to become their first pastor, it was a group of people who had met initially as a prayer meeting for the China Inland Mission. And on Sundays, they all traveled out of town because there was no evangelical church in town. And then uh, at some point, they said, why don't we start a church? And uh, they, they bought a plot of land 
and they had a, a plan to start a church. And uh, I had met them, and they asked me if I would become their first pastor. And I said to them, well, I, I've had an experience of the Spirit, which would tend to affect how I lead you and where I want to go. And they said, we've heard you preach. We know that you're biblical. And so if you read us from the Bible, we'll follow. And so uh, we were always, it was all very open and upfront. Uh, but that did take quite a while because although that particular church had no traditions, uh, individuals in it had their own traditions. So it took a little while to uh, make the transition. And that's been a theme for you, hasn't it, all throughout your ministry, you know, deep diving into the scriptures and into theology, and yet very alive to what the Spirit is doing in the moment. Has there ever been times when that's been a conflict for you? No, that's tended to be my strength and encouragement. Uh, it's a fascinating comment that you've made. And uh, I think really that's, I, I was always assured that what we were doing was biblical. It wasn't some crazy new fad. But well, that the church had become something different to the Bible. So we were trying to be very biblical and restore the freshness and the sense of the family that was in the early church. That's so interesting you say that. So the church had become different to what the Bible painted a picture of. Uh, coming right back up to, to present day, is that an accusation we could make of the church still, that it's not actually uh, living out what the Bible shows us? I, th I think, yeah, I feel quite concerned about that, that some of the churches we started initially were very small uh, in homes, actually, and then outgrew their homes. They went to hired halls, and uh, eventually uh, most of those uh, what were house churches that we started here on the south coast um, became warehouse churches, actually, and became pretty big. And uh, the temptation when you get bigger is to become more formal, and so I, I am concerned that we almost have got a complete circle uh, back to, um, I think they would not like my saying they're formal meetings, but I think, I think they tend to have taken that trip, some of them, not some more than others, but I would love us to get more, more relaxed and uh, more open to something spontaneous in our meetings. Yes, the journey of a pioneer, isn't it, to, to break, uh, break fresh ground and then to, you know, to, to cope with the, the shock of that. And then I suppose how you then stay, you know, how is, what is it, norming, storming and forming, they call it, isn't it? And, and how you've taken new frontiers through those, you know, three uh, huge journeys. You weren't afraid to, to stop things and, and break things and, and change habits, were you, across the whole journey of, of new frontiers from stopping Stonely Bible Week to uh, handing over the reins and uh, changing the, the whole structure of new frontiers in, into the spheres. Has, do you feel that God always gives you the strategy on that or do you have to sort of sit and work it out? Because all of these things were quite, quite new things, weren't they? I think sometimes I've been asked... Uh, actually to speak on how do you start a movement and uh, I've always joked that I, ne I never even dreamed I was starting a movement uh, we just kept moving and uh, you know we planted one church and another church and another church and then you look over your shoulder and you realize oh yeah we, we do have a movement coming and uh, that was never our original intention and we've just kept going and I think that when we met hostility I mean from my initial uh, background, I was converted from a non-Christian background completely uh, into a Baptist church that had a, I mean, a beautiful pastor, terrific preacher, lovely man, and then got filled with the Spirit. And how does that work here? I try to work that out. 
Now he was he was very warm, very kind to me. But there were people in the ranks of the church who were very alarmed that the young people were now speaking in tongues and uh, going out on the streets and witnessing on the streets of Brighton. And and some were enthusiastic, some were quite troubled. And so right from the beginning, every new thing um, seemed to meet with a mixture of uh, yeah, appreciation but hostility. So when we, when we started new churches, uh, some were saying, who gave you the right to start new churches? You know, who do you think you are kind of thing? Whereas all we were trying to do was gather with, with people of like mind and initially in homes, very low profile, and then gradually they grew. And uh, uh, so we began to get higher profile. And then again, there comes uh, like an opposition because, hey, this thing is growing. And I think that every new thing uh, led to a little bit of hostility. But I did feel we were led. And uh, then when, when, we, when God, I felt God made it clear to us that it was time for us to stop Stonely Bible Week. That was quite a big surprise to us, but we really felt God made it clear that that was what was to happen. And I think if we had not stopped Stonely, if we had all been together in what became such a massive thing, um, it would have been very difficult to have done what we've now done in releasing it to different spheres because Stonely uh, so dominated our world. It wasn't who we were, it was something we did. But not like Spring Harvest sort of thing. Spring Harvest is Spring Harvest. Uh, we were a church planting movement who also did a thing called Stonely. So stopping Stonely was okay for us. Yeah. And how are the spheres working? For those of us that aren't necessarily linked to a New Frontiers church, it's, I think it's quite hard to get our head around without getting too much into the detail. How, how do you picture how these spheres fit together now? Yeah. I, well, just to, to say how it happened, uh, we had an annual leaders event and I'd, I'd heard uh, some preaching by Mark Driscoll, whom I'd never met. And uh, his preaching on the cross was magnificent. And uh, I just asked him to come. It's funny because uh, I'd never before asked somebody I'd never met before. So I'd never met him. But um, he gave three fine words uh, in the main sessions. And uh, in the third one, he, he just, without having told me he was going to do it, he said to 5,000 people, uh, effectively, Terry is getting pretty old. How long is he going to lead this? And uh, uh, you should be thinking about your future as a movement. Was there a uh, gasp so... that went around the room when he did that? <laughs> I think you can't say that. <laughs> and uh, uh, to be honest, as a, an international team, by then we had guys in different parts of the world and we met together regularly to talk and fellowship and pray. And uh, we had often said, hey, we should be thinking about the future. Uh, we're not getting any younger, or at least I'm not. And uh, I guess we, none of us were, but I was out there ahead. And, uh, uh, but, we, but to be honest, we were so enjoying ourselves, we did nothing about it. We, we talked about it and then left it. And so his speaking as he did was what we needed. It, it was there. Uh, we're, suddenly it's right in our face in front of 5,000 people. And then I began to think about my own family and a number of things came to me first of all perhaps i don't remember the order but one was my family i have five kids and they're all now parents i've got four sons and a daughter they've all got their own children and i thought when i pass away one of my sons will not become the father of the family they've all got their own families 
And I realized that I had a number of guys who worked with me and they would have said, in a sense, what they did was with me and for me. Uh, but in real terms, I mean, there were guys in Africa, in India, in Mexico, in America, all over the world. And they would say, I'm in Terry's team. I do this for Terry. But the reality was they were the guys doing the work. They were, they were raising up the churches in India, which I would frequently visit, but they were doing the work and they were raising up the people. And so I thought, wait a minute, they, they are the fathers. Why should I introduce to them someone who's now, oh, I don't know. Uh, and uh, I, I actually met the young man who had taken over this other movement that I heard about. I met him once at an airport and he said, well, I'm just going to another nation to introduce myself to them. And I thought, yeah, that doesn't work, does it? They don't even know you and you're being introduced as their leader. And so it seemed a much more genuine family feel, uh, not a business, but a family. And uh, yeah, these, these guys who would, many of them would have said they're like sons to Terry. We have worked together. I'd, some of them I've worked with for many years. Uh, and But they, they were now already leading works. So instead of handing over to one, I, I, I handed over, as it were, to about 15 guys scattered around the world. It must be incredible for you to be able to have this bird's eye view of what God's doing through the worldwide church. Um, what are you seeing? What, what are you seeing? You've mentioned India and Kenya and Mexico. What are you seeing? What, what can the Western church learn from what God's doing in other places around the world? We have um, an annual conference uh, this year, which was in Cyprus. Um, and we've we've been in Turkey, we've been in Greece, we've, we tried to go to the Middle East. Uh, it's helpful for people traveling from Africa, from India, etc. And also we want to get away from the English base. Uh, so we've used the, the Middle East. And uh, we were in Cyprus back in October. And I think it was, it was fascinating to hear uh, the testimonies. The first guy who spoke was from Zimbabwe, uh, where the churches are multiplying. And he spoke about suffering and the difficulties they face. I mean, the, the collapse of the economy, uh, it's, it, it, economically, politically, Zimbabwe is a very difficult place. I mean, Christianity is not persecuted, but it's just very hard. There's, there's no economy anymore and so on. And um, it's tough. Uh, and so that was a very challenging word. He spoke about suffering. And then later on, another guy spoke from India who... Uh, spoke about persecution, where there was increasing persecution in India because they wanted it to be a Hindu nation. And, uh, and so there's a very dear, real persecution, uh, imprisonment for changing your religion and things of that order. Uh, the guy from Pakistan also uh, leads what we're doing in Pakistan, uh, uh, gave testimony. The guy from Turkey, who was supposed to be at the conference, um, sent us a short video he was stopped at the airport and called us from prison where, uh, because in Turkey, uh, there's the more and more of an Islamic nation and uh, he had been uh, uh, take, just prevented from coming to us. Um, a number of our workers in Turkey have come out for one different reason or another and then find they can't, they're not allowed back in. They may have taken a sabbatical or a little outward, but they're not allowed back in the country. So, it was the most serious conference. Then a guy from China, who's usually with us, again sent a video and said, we can't do it anymore. China is tougher. The church is tougher. 
than it's ever been. So uh, living as Christian in China is getting harder again. The church life is being crushed again. So it was the most serious conference we've ever been at. Yet at the same time, it was great joy because we have guys from the Ukraine, Andrei Bondarenko, one of our pastors, and then we had pastors from Russia uh, together worshipping Jesus side by side. Uh, and the wonder of the gospel that unites people whose nations are even at war with one another uh, is just breathtaking and wonderful. And there was great joy in our being together, but there was that sense of it's it's very serious. And there are talks from, I could speak, I won't talk about, but other nations in the Middle East where it's very, very tough to be a Christian uh, and everything we do there is under the radar. And so there was a kind of a, a very real seriousness and yet a huge joy in, in knowing the gospel and knowing Jesus. Uh, and, I, and I feel it's a privilege, massive privilege, uh, to be working with people uh, whose Christianity is costing them everything, really, uh, that it's no joke. They could be in prison, they could be in all kinds of difficult situations, but Jesus has won their hearts and excited them, and people are getting saved all the time in those very difficult situations. The spiritual temperature, the spiritual climate in the UK is changing, isn't it? It's getting more difficult. Uh, was it less than 50% of the nation identify as Christians now? What, what's your response to that? What's your, your, what, what are your concerns around that? Well, I think that the reality is when I was converted, I was converted when Billy Graham came to England, my sister got saved, came home and led me to Christ. And she said to me, I have become a Christian. And my answer as a total non-Christian was, aren't we all Christians? That's what I said. That's what I thought. I'm, I'm, I'm English. I'm a Christian. Uh, now, that was back in the 1950s, a long time ago. Uh, gradually, as years have slipped by, I guess in those days, I, I thought I was a Christian. I didn't know what a Christian was. Um, and, and churchgoers were the ones who took it seriously. Uh, we know, we, you know we're, we're not taking it seriously like they do. Uh, but I had no problem with them. Then gradually as time went by, I think the stronger kind of atheistic comments, hostility maybe. Uh, so that these, these, yeah, okay, these are do-gooders, they're Christians, they're churchgoers. Uh, and then again, it's moved. So now, for the first time in my life, the Christians are the problem people. Um, and so, you know, they, you know, Christians are the bad people. Uh, in, in a way, they're, they're against certain things that what people, other people want to embrace as being human freedoms, uh, and Christians are against them. So Christians are now uh, in a place where we're the bad people, and, and some of our youngsters, probably more than uh, adults, uh, are meeting that all the time in their schools and elsewhere where, oh, you're against this, you're against, oh, you're a Christian, you're against things. And so Christians, instead of saying we're all Christian, they know they're not Christian and they're anti-Christian because, hey, these Christians are against things. Christians are narrow. Christians uh, are the ugly ones. That's, that's the, the huge challenge that's come. And I think that the church needs to wait to the, the situation which could get worse uh, it's not at the moment, we're not in prison like in um, some other nations. But I think hostility to Christianity is growing in our country. 
Uh, and so we need to be strong in ourselves. We certainly don't need to be casual. And that, I think, is a, a wake-up call for us. So how do we prepare if, if, as you say, things might get worse in terms of public perception of, of Christians as individuals, hostility towards what many Christians uh, would hold dear in terms of, of principles? How, how do we prepare ourselves? How do we respond for that? Well, I think, I think, I mean, that is how the church was born, really. Uh, the church was born in persecution. And their, their, their spontaneous answer was to pray. And I, and I think from, that would be my uh, emphasis. We stay true to the Bible and, and we pray. And it's encouraging also you know, to hear what we're hearing from Kentucky, uh, Asbury, where there's revival. I don't know much about it. I've heard from one or two reports of people who visited. It sounds authentic. sounds like God is saving people. His, his presence, it would appear to be there. And, and I would I would encourage us to gather and pray and seek God. We need something fresh from God. You can't expect government to legislate for righteousness. It's, it's never been it's never been the government's responsibility. Uh, spiritual impact is the church's responsibility. And I and I think the church needs to rediscover corporate prayer, seeking God together in prayer. Uh, I I. I myself gather with guys every week to pray for revival i've been doing that for some time and i really just feel we really desperately need god to freshly awaken the church i want to talk to you more about revival in a minute but i suppose i just want to dig a little bit deeper on this thing around as you say a hostility on on the culture wars um i i suppose you know for many christians you know listening today they'll they're 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 I, my sense is that quite a lot of Christians aren't quite sure which way to go, particularly in in issues of, of gender identity and sexuality. Uh, they they know what they what the Bible has been has been um, what the traditional interpretation of the Bible has been for for many centuries, but they might have uh, family members who are um, you know same sex attracted or you know even going on the trans journey. They certainly will have colleagues or people in their communities who are. And I think there's this tension of how do I respond to that? How do I love people? Uh, how do I accept people? And yet you know what does the bible really say how how do what's your response to that and how do we how, how do we approach that as individual christians i think as individuals and as churches we our calling is to love all and to be open to receive all i think our our message uh, on gender issues and so on is nevertheless the same as it's always been and so i think trends come and go in the culture uh, but i think that we have a message which actually is a message of hope and joy and fulfillment because we are living God's way, God's pattern in terms of gender issues. Uh, God's way is clear. If we receive the scriptures for what they say, then this will bring peace and joy to people. That doesn't mean we should be hostile uh, to anybody. Our doors can be open to receive whoever. We, wouldn't, we shouldn't be hostile. It may be in the, in the past the church has been guilty of perhaps being hostile to people. But I think that uh, I was just reading Andrew Bunt's wonderful new book about identity, uh, which I would wholeheartedly commend, which is very gentle and compassionate, but also extremely clear. And I've spoken to Sam Albury, uh, you know, at length, uh, who can be so articulate about the battles he's fought with same-sex attraction. You know, he's written books about it. He's an amazing guy and able to be so articulate 
but he's saying, no, look, I know that's been a problem with me, but I can see from the Bible that is not the way forward and that's not going to bring any fulfillment to me. I want to, I will stay celibate. So there are these voices that are very clear uh, coming through. Now, this is what the Bible says. I know I have a problem, but that's my problem. And he said, that's not who I am. I am a Christian. I'm a born-again person. I'm in, I'm in Christ. That's my identity. But I have this problem that I have to just find my way through. And obviously, he's written books about it, and others are now. But I think that the church needs to be all-embracing in terms of welcoming people, as we would welcome anyone. Uh, but to preach an unchanging gospel is our calling. It's one of the hot topic I want to discuss with you as well. Can we, can we talk about women in leadership? I know that's something that uh, New Frontiers, you've, you've never had women elders. Is, is that something you still feel passionate about and sure about, or is there a changing landscape there? Well, I, I don't feel terribly passionate because it's not something that preoccupies, but uh, I, I feel, yeah, we have women fulfilled in all kinds of areas of church life, but it seems to us that in the Bible, Eldership is a male province. And has that been frustrating? Because there must be talented women right across your network who, who would have the gifts and skills to do that. Has, has that been difficult for them? Have you had to have difficult conversations with women who, who feel they're gifted but, and feel they're called, but aren't able to express that fully within the churches in your network? I, I personally haven't. I've had some conversations with people. Uh, I, had, I, I, I met a lady in one of the... Uh, churches who chatted to me, but she said, "When I got saved, I was uh, uh, I was all for, I was a feminist." And she said, "I came in quite aggressively. I got saved." And then she said, "I was just chatting through the scriptures and showing the scriptures." Oh, I said, "I see it. I see it." And so she uh, saw that that's a biblical stance, and so uh, she was happy with that. And I, I think that women in our ranks are. I don't think you meet frustration. I think you meet people who are happy, they're fulfilled, they're secure, and they're doing lots and lots of things in our churches. The women doing all kinds of deaconing work, they have uh, all kinds of creative things. It's eldership, which has authority with it, which uh, uh, I think is just, it's in the Bible. That, that's where we stand. We're not hostile. Uh, we embrace, we, we applaud uh, uh, people like Jackie Pullinger, a massive hero to us and others. Similar, we would often uh, use, these, you know, the Corrie Ten Boom. There have been wonderful, wonderful women, but we feel, and there are wonderful women in our ranks. We thank God for them. Uh, mothers in Israel, as the Bible would say, we thank God for them. But it's just eldership seems to be just it's trying to obey the Bible. I've got to face Jesus one day. <laughs> I'm a responsible leader. And, and I think he might say, what did you, what do you do about, with, about my Bible, my word? And that, to me, that's the simple thing. Too many of us are living in a bubble and not hearing both sides of the world's important stories. It's time for a more rounded perspective. It's time to discover Premier Christianity. Balanced, confident, relevant, faith-filled. Discover fresh biblical perspectives as we bring you wide-ranging stories that impact the church. Discover the go-to source for Christian news. Subscribe at premierchristianity.com. Now only five pounds for three months. Today on the programme, I'm speaking to veteran church leader Terry Virgo, who founded New Frontiers International. In part one, Terry shared how challenging it was in the early days to break the mould of dry, traditional church. 
He also talked through how the New Frontiers movement has evolved over the years and how he's handling the challenges to today's believers. In the second part of our conversation, we get a bit more personal. I asked Terry to share his own story of healing and what happens in his own times with God. But first, I ask him about his life's great passion, praying for revival. I I come from a non-Christian background, totally. My parents were not believers until very late in life. Uh, We didn't have a Bible in our home. We didn't go to church. I lived a very pagan life. Uh, I enjoyed it a lot. I used to get drunk a lot. I used to party a lot. Uh, That was my life. I was enjoying life. I wasn't I wasn't seeking God. And so when I got saved, um, it was quite a huge thing, really. And I had a lot of difficulty getting out of my old lifestyle because I was enjoying it so much and had such good friends and we loved life. And I found church quite difficult because um, church seemed so cold and formal. And, you know, what is that? This is supposed to be life. I think what I was in before was life. And I remember my first Saturday night at home, and I thought, I'm, I can't go out anymore. And what do I do? This is awful. And getting used to, I mean, terribly boring Christianity, that's how it seemed to me, was quite hard. So when when what became called the charismatic movement, it hadn't started when I got, you know, when I, when I discovered life in the spirit, whoa, things came alive. I was so excited. And then quite quickly, I read a book called in the Day of Thy Power by Arthur Wallace, which is a classic book on revival. And I began to read books on revival and what happened in the Welsh revival, the Wesleyan revival, and I began to pray for revival. And when I left my secular job, I mean, 60 years ago now, uh, in 1963, I left my uh, my secular uh, job, I, I felt my call was to pray for revival. That's what I felt called by God. Uh, I didn't I didn't have any idea what I was going to do or be. Uh, uh, I didn't have any... I, I, I was 23. I, I, I didn't know what I was going to do. I just started going from house to house, knocking doors, and talking to people about Jesus. But my, behind that was a... My time was spent praying for revival. I've got a book called England Before and After Wesley, which shows that, first of all, there was this amazing spiritual revival, thousands becoming Christian, then the setup of loads and loads of churches, and then on the back of that, Shaftesbury, Wilberforce, and the massive social changes that gave England its character, really. Uh, When people say, what is Englishness? A lot of it comes out of that Wesleyan revival and the changes made by Shaftesbury uh, in hospitals, education, prison reform, the way children were treated. I mean, the social fabric of our nation was changed by these men at uh, the end of slavery on the back of this amazing revival. And so revival has this ability not just to warm up the church, but to impact society. And so that's what my longing is for. I thank God for little outbreaks of the spirits moving, but authentic revival changes the changes society and uh, so that's my longing that we might see an outpouring of the spirit does it frustrate uh, you that it hasn't happened that we still keep talking about things that were 200 years ago as you're like yeah. ah, come on yes well i feel that i feel that in prayer and i think we're meant to feel that we're meant to feel come on come on and uh, even in even in the bible oh that you would 
rend the heavens and come down. Oh, that you would. And uh, another phrase in my reading this week, so you'll come like a pent-up flood. And I'm praying that, Lord, come on, Lord, come like a pent-up flood. Uh, you know, the great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in, in 1959, he stopped the series of preaching he was doing and preached on revival right through 1959 at Westminster Chapel um, in memory of a century since the 1859 revival. And he said in 59, because you can, you know, there's a book now of some of the sermons he preached in that year. And he said, if we don't get revival in our nation soon, we're in big trouble. He said that in 59, before the so-called swinging 60s, when England changed radically in the 60s. And the 60s look very mild now compared to where we are now. So our need for revival is massive. And, I, you know, I, I prayed, I've, I've heard of dear friends who've been over uh, to Asbury and, and been stirred by it and come back. I prayed for them, Lord, break out where they are, just because that has often been the way mm-hmm. in the revivals. And they say in the um, uh, 1905 revival in Wales that uh, the pastor of Charlotte Chapel, Edinburgh, went down and visited and then went back to Charlotte Chapel, and it all broke out there. You know, it seems from revivals in the past that it's, it's got this strange, like, fire fire that jumps from one place to another. And, and, you know, there are certain aspects to it that are quite remarkable, and God can suddenly come. So I pray for God to suddenly, it says suddenly from heaven. Yeah, That's my longing that we will find that he'll break through, and he, he, he may choose where he will do that but I still long for that to come. I heard that you'd had quite a special touch of the power of God recently as well in your, in your physical health. You have a, I have an annual blood test, which I think you know National Health puts on for you. And I don't take any notice, to be honest. I just give the blood and walk away. And I, they usually say phone in and ask how it went, and I, I sometimes do, but I most often don't. And then the following week I had a phone call from the doctor saying, um, would you please come in? Um, we have, uh, we just need to talk to you about your blood. And I went in and uh, he showed me the chart of my blood tests over the last few years, which was fairly straight line, you know, the unchanging. And then this year it went straight off the, off the chart, went off. It was, it was, he said, this is very serious. You're, your, your blood, there's something wrong with your blood. And then he said it could be myeloma, which is cancer of the blood, of which my sister died six years ago. And he said, it's very serious. He said, uh, there's no cure. Um, but, you know, we need to get to grips with this. Uh, and I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching in Canada next week. I'm going to Canada in three days' time. He said, no, you're not. No, you can't. You've got to cancel that now. And, uh, um, you know, Can I you ask just... how you felt in that moment, in the room, having not paid much attention? I know you've had other health issues in the past. What, what did you feel in that moment? Honestly, that, that sense of, well, there were two things, really. One was, um, I can't live forever. And so this, this is it then. Uh, and, and also this sort of strange sense of unreality because I wasn't feeling unwell at all. And that's the nature of the things. How it was with my sister happened quite quickly, um, but uh, so and I I I came home 
I told my wife, I, I got in touch with our five kids and said, look, I, I literally said that. Uh, I can't live forever. And here's, here's, this is it. This is the way it's going to finish. And uh, I wrote to the guys in Vancouver. Uh, that's it. And then a few days later, oh, no, no, no. The next day, I was at this prayer meeting that I just – this happened on the Tuesday. On the Wednesday, I'm at the regular prayer. And I said to Wendy, my wife, let's not talk about it. It'll dominate the prayer meeting. Let's just get on with our prayers. So we didn't tell anyone. We just prayed. And uh, uh, and then just at the end of the, phone, the prayer meeting, no, during the prayer meeting, one of the guys, Steve Brading, who's a very prophetic guy, he said, as we were worshipping, he said, uh, uh, I just see the Lord going around the room. He's pouring out oil on us. He's just pouring out his blessing on us. So that's fine. But, and uh, And then, to my amazement, I just burst out laughing, uh, uncontrollably laughing. It went on for quite a long time, just laughing, laughing, laughing at the inexpressible joy. I mean, it was just extraordinary. I've never known anything personally like it before. And then when the meeting just began to close, the phone rang in my pocket. It's the doctor, will you come in? Could you bring your wife with you? And uh, I did. And he wanted to tell her how serious this was and put her in the picture completely. And uh, while we're there, he took some more blood and just said, you know, we need to get you into hospital as soon as possible. You need to have chemo, uh, but there's no cure for this. You need to know it. And I think, I don't know whether he felt I didn't take him seriously the first time, but he wanted my wife to know how serious this was. And um, anyway, we talked it all through. And then a couple of days later, I get another phone call from the doctor. and. Uh, he wants me to come in, but he's saying, look, uh, I, this is rather embarrassing. He said, I don't know quite um, what to say. He said, he said our, our laboratories never make mistakes, but, I, you know, you just gave me some more blood on a second visit. There's nothing wrong with your blood. It's completely okay. There's, and and uh, uh, he said, I, I've written a formal letter to the laboratory. Uh, I will write to you for British Airways, if you like, about you had to cancel your ticket and put it back on again, which you did. And uh, uh, and then I, <laughs> I said to him, so can I go to Canada then? He said, you can go where you like. He said, so <laughs> I flew to Canada. My wife, Wendy, says, you know, I'm getting ready for him to go to Canada. Then she's got to cope with I'm going to die. Then she's cope with I'm going anyway. Uh, so it's like a hilarious experience for my wife. So, so yeah. what was going on? Was it a laboratory mistake? What do you think? What do you feel? <laughs> I think I think God healed me, but I, I don't think we'll ever know. Because um, I think when we get to glory, it's not going to be the biggest question we'll ask. <laughs> I think people say, oh, we'll find out when we get to glory. Uh, I think when we get to glory, we'll be so overwhelmed with Jesus. I don't think we'll even bother to, to find out. But uh, I, 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 I think God healed me. But um, God, God knows, it was. Uh, I feel fine. I don't feel any restriction. Uh, I feel free and happy. It's an incredible story, and and I love uh, that that moment you describe of, of being filled with with the joy of the Lord. I mean, God's always God's always up to something, isn't He? So not only was He giving you that that sense of you know uh, Him at work in your, in your own life and your own body, was, was He using it for something else as well? Was was there something in that moment where you thought? Well, I, I am gonna, I am gonna face Jesus at some point. 
Did he speak to you about that? You know, when you reach my age, I'm, I'm 83, okay? So, you know, you haven't got long. You don't know. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm just making arrangements for travel later in the year. And I, I'm, I'm trusting him well. I, 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 I feel happy. I'm I, I very fulfilled preaching. I have no, no desire to stop. I'm carrying on doing what I'm doing. Uh, I never felt I was employed by anybody. I felt God called me and I serve God and that will carry on until I come. Yeah, I don't know how to express it. I, I feel uh, um, very happy in God preaching. Uh, I, I don't know if I would say a fresh anointing. People use that kind of language. I feel very happy in preaching. Uh, I've just been to South Africa. I preached, I think I, think I preached 21 times in those six weeks. And uh, around a number of churches, and I, I felt free and happy, and people seemed to be very responsive. We saw some people healed. We saw some people filled with the Spirit. Uh, I, I'm happy to keep pressing on. Is that the way you really feel alive when you're when you're being to, when you're preaching God's word, when you're seeing the Spirit move? Is that when you when you feel like yes, this is my sweet spot. This is this is me being the full Terry Virgo. I guess, I guess so. Sometimes people say, I, I preach five times one weekend while we're away. Someone said to me at the end of the thing, I said, I suppose you feel exhausted. I said, to be honest, I feel exhilarated. Um, I'll probably feel tired tomorrow. But I, I feel it is the grace of God on you in the gift. It is. It, it's it, When you're operating in what God's called you to do, is when you feel exhilarated rather than exhausted. And... Uh, I feel it, it, it's the way the grace of God works in us. When Paul says it, not I, but the grace of God that's with me. I find that when I'm doing what God's called me to do, I feel the grace of God with me in it. Does it ever get old seeing someone get filled with the Holy Spirit for the first time or seeing someone healed or released from something for the first time? Is that always a thrill? I love seeing people filled with the Spirit as I saw in South Africa recently. I love it. It's always thrilling. And I, and I, I'm thrilled when, when I see people heal. I was in the States, yeah, probably my, one of the dramatic ones, prayed for a woman whose back was hurting her on the Saturday. And the elders and wives were just an informal meeting, were chatting, and she said to her, she was in pain, so I prayed for her. On the Sunday, that was the next day, she stood during the worship, came to the mic, and, uh, and in tears said, Terry prayed for me last night, all the pain in my back's gone and I was able to pick up my child for the first time um, and even my child's amazed I could pick her up we can I've never been able to do that and I've I had for 10 years I've had excruciating body pain and it's all gone I mean you just can't get over that you just sit there overwhelmed and uh, I, I was I was at Topi Colioso's church um, um, just before I went to South Africa in January and I have a dear friend, an Indian evangelist called Ram Babu, who was preaching there. And uh, I mean, it was magnificent. It was called, he called, Toppy called the conference God's Manifest Presence. And um, I prayed for a lot of people, got filled with the Spirit. Ram Babu preached on healing, which is his phenomenal gift. And uh, 60 people lined up to give testimony at the mic about how they've been healed. I mean, 60. I've never seen so many people healed in one meeting. One woman who was bent over, just like the Bible character, I mean, absolutely bent over, and he prayed for her, and she stood upright as we watched. And uh, she was walking around upright, 
uh, I'm just completely, her whole appearance changed. And uh, another guy who, who leapt high like a basketball player and he couldn't move before and he's jumping high. I've got it on video, leaping up. Another woman who was holding the crutches up over her head that she'd come to the meeting with. I mean, 60, one after another, after another. It's just that, God, you're in this meeting. And, uh, uh, you know, I just feel... God, God is accessible. There are there are mo there are breakout points. God is present, and uh, I think we are, our expectation level can continually rise. Certainly mine, and I even while we're there, and we're worshiping. I asked Rabbi Bill, I said, "Pray for me again. Pray for me again, because I want to reach for more." I'm curious, what's it like when people are very used to seeing you on the platform? Might be used to seeing you in meetings. What's it like when it's just you and God together? A lot of fun. <laughs> Tell me. Uh, as the years have gone by, uh, you're a very cheeky word. <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> do, do. I, I'm retired now, so I don't have to meet anybody else's schedule. Um, more of my, my prayer time is more worship than it's ever been. So I'm, I'm singing this morning. I'm singing and worshipping. And, I, and I, I picked up an old hymn book. I always have an old hymn book. And I, I was reminded of a magnificent old hymn. I just sing it out. And, uh, uh, you know, I just enjoy the wonder of it. Uh, it was a song about the second coming. Um, and uh, I just overwhelmed with love and joy and delight. Uh, so I get on to pray. My wife joins me often. And, um, I, I just worship for quite a long time. And then my wife would join me and we pray for all sorts of things. I start praying for things and she usually joins me a bit later on. So uh, it's a lot of fun. I, I love it. I love being in the presence of the Lord. I just love it so much. How would you describe God to somebody who's not had that, that personal experience of him? I, I don't know that my description is of great worth. I think I, I'm working through Isaiah you know, those latter chapters in Isaiah are breathtaking. And uh, I, before I went overseas, I was I was working through um, the book of Revelation and, uh, and using Beale's commentary. And it's very detailed. It's very fat. But the majesty of Christ in the book of Revelation is just awesome. And uh, But it's a very fat book, so I couldn't take it with me. And I just thought, I'll work through Isaiah. Uh, just without a book, just read it. And I just read a chapter a day, and um, it's just breathtaking. So I think my description's not going to be terribly relevant, but I think that <laughs> just let, you know, just what it says, it's just breathtaking. And to see the glory. What do you think is the thing that God's put you here to do here on earth? What's for me to do? I think. I mean, I, I'm preaching on Sunday. And my, I've been praying. Lord, I want to bring your presence. I want to see people meet with Jesus. I'm praying you might heal some people. Um, you know, you just keep pressing on. I think I heard a guy preach years ago now, and he talked about Zechariah um, when you know the father of John the Baptist, and he said he was he said he was completing his round. In other words. He's just, you know, that's when it was his time to go to the temple. It was he was on he was on duty, and he made a terrific point. I think 
that God came to a man who was just doing his duty, and suddenly, you know, the whole purpose of God breaks out. John the Baptist, Jesus coming. I just, I thought, made a terrific point. It wasn't, it wasn't a special occasion. It's just getting on with what God gave him to do. And I think that's all one can do. You get on with what God's given you to do, and you long for uh, the day when suddenly God comes. I, you can't make it happen. God's sovereign. I believe. I believe in the sovereignty of God. But I, I believe that you know you get on with what God's given you to do, and uh, and who knows? Maybe one of those days God will suddenly break through. That was Terry Virgo speaking to me, Esther Hyam, here on the profile on Premier Christian Radio. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine.